asked, what is the most stupendous headline that you could ever imagine writing? And you know what the majority answer was? Jesus Christ returns to planet Earth. Isn't that cool? If you have a Christian worldview, a part of that worldview is your belief that Jesus Christ will indeed break into human history, changing everything. Jesus Christ will come back again. No other religion or philosophy has that idea in it. So let me ask you this morning, how do you feel about that? Do you feel a little indifferent? Maybe skeptical? Curious? Or excited and inspired? Today I want to give an overview of this broad topic, not only discussing about Jesus' second coming from Scripture, but also some events and people associated with the second coming. And with that painting of the big picture today, I'm concluding my series on developing a Christian worldview. As you probably know, interpreting end-time scripture is notoriously difficult. If you've ever tried to read the book of Revelation and say, I can't make any sense of this. Look, I, I share your sympathies in completely in that. It can be difficult. So let me give you three basic interpretive keys, especially for end-time scripture, but really all scripture. The first is, what did the text mean to the original audience? That's so important because it was about them first. See, we think with end-time scripture, we have our newspaper in one hand and our Bible in the other. And we think this is about us. And we forget that it's about them, too. Also, something else about this type of literature. It's called apocalyptic literature. Very common in the three centuries surrounding the time of Christ, like the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. It's highly symbolic. So it was clearer to them than it is to us. For instance, if you saw a picture of a donkey and an elephant together, what would you think? Politics, right? Republican and Democrats, all right? So that's pretty clear to us. That wouldn't be clear to everybody else. Or you see a picture of an old man with a long white beard dressed in red, white, and blue. Who is that guy? Uncle Sam, right? That represents America. That's clear to us. People from other countries, they may not understand that man, that picture of who he is. In fact, people in America may not understand who that man is 250 years from now. A second important principle are what are the underlying timeless principles of the text? Well, what speaks beyond just the, the immediate answer, even to those people? The book of Revelation, for instance, was given to give hope to the readers more than information. Revelation is about faithfulness and suffering more than it is how to crack the code. To John's audience, they were experiencing tremendous persecution under Domitian and the other Roman emperors before him. They were suffering and dying for their faith. And John wanted to encourage them and give them hope to let them know that, hey, in the end, we win. And the third is, how can I apply these truths? Scripture must always be applied. I must always be looking for application. Again, it's not who knows more, but perhaps who does more. It's living it out. That's always so important in Scripture. 
But the Bible says a lot about the book of Revelation. I mean, the Bible says a lot about the second coming of Jesus Christ. One out of 30 verses in the Bible are on it. There are 216 chapters in the New Testament, and there are over 300 references to the second coming. That equals out more than one per chapter. And only four of 27 New Testament books fail to mention it. So it's, it's in the Bible. It's in the New Testament. It's very important, and it's a timely topic for us to talk about. So why don't we dive in? Under Roman numeral one, signs of Jesus is coming. Signs point to something beyond themselves, like road signs. You're, you're driving on 64 and you see a road sign, Charlottesville, 72 miles. So that lets you know you can anticipate what lies ahead is the city of Charlottesville. And the same thing is true with eschatology. Signs point to something up the road ahead that you can anticipate that this is going to happen. So let's talk about some signs that point to the end. Jesus said a number of these things that point to the end. We see these things throughout history, and we will see them at the end of the age. Mark 13, 5 to 8, this is Jesus speaking. Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, a kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pangs. So these things have happened throughout history, and they point to and will intensify at the end. False Christs, wars, earthquakes. When we lived in California, we lived through two earthquakes. It's a pretty scary experience. There will be big earthquakes at the end, the Bible says. Famines happening throughout the world. And the worldwide preaching of the gospel. Jesus in Matthew 24, 14 said, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. You know, that verse, if we take it literally, could not have been fulfilled until our day. But all the nations of the earth, all peoples will hear the gospel. And that's really happening now. I remember some years ago, a Billy Graham crusade where he announced that 103 nations, his telecast was going into those countries at the same time. And that was an amazing thing back then. But now with technology, all the peoples of the earth will have opportunities to hear the gospel, thus aiding evangelism. So these kind of signs like wars and famines and things point to the end. They've happened throughout history. But again, they're right before the end. Letter B, signs preceding the end. These are things that have also always occurred, but they intensify dramatically at the end of the age. One, first one of those is apostasy. And that's a sad one, isn't it? Falling away of believers. Jesus warned in Matthew 24:10, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Second Thessalonians 2, 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. There will be an increase in evil before the end of the age. There, it, there's always been evil, but it 
ramps up and intensifies and is more visible and more widespread. And we're certainly seeing that now. Mark 13, 12, and brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Scoffers will be prevalent at the end of the age as they were in Peter's day, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own evil, sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And false prophets. Matthew twenty four eleven. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. In fact, Jesus said the most important sign and the most repeated sign that we're in the last days is deception. We must be knowledgeable about the scriptures and walking with the Lord so we aren't deceived and led astray. And then there are C, signs accompanying the end. These are things that have never occurred before or never occurred on this scale, such as signs in the heavens. Luke 21. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Matthew twenty four twenty one. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. These are things that are going to happen. Cosmic signs and great tribulation right before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's talk about the time of Jesus' coming. Jesus gives some descriptions. He paints some word pictures for how we can be ready and anticipate his coming. He talks about his coming like that of a bridegroom. That we can anticipate a wedding. There's a date out there somewhere. We don't know what his date of coming is. But like a wedding, we anticipate it eagerly. He said his coming will be like it was in the days of Sodom. Things bad, horrible bad, then boom, judgment. He said his coming will be like lightning in the sky, unmistakable, seen by all. Jesus said, when I come again, it'll be like the days of Noah. And it's described there in Matthew twenty four thirty seven to 42 as Things proceeding like normal. People buying and selling and getting married and those sorts of things. And then the flood comes. And then he describes it like a thief in the night. It'll have a surprise element. And that's why we must be watching. Here's some facts about his coming. It's soon. Revelation 22, 7. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And when he says soon, that doesn't mean tomorrow. Maybe it will be tomorrow. But John said this, remember, nearly 2,000 years ago. The Bible says that with the Lord, one day is like a 1,000 years. So to God, it's always soon. And as a result, we should be alert and watching because we don't know the day. I think it's always right for us to be expecting the soon return of the Lord in our hearts and living accordingly. 
Second thing, it's known only to God. The exact day that is. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the son, but the father only. I do think we can know the season because Jesus told us about all these signs that we can look for that are happening to let us know that it's it's soon. It's close, but not the day. It is futile to set dates. And if you read articles or hear someone speak and they've got a theory that it's going to be on this certain date, you can pretty much dismiss it. There's been a lot of wrong predictions over the years. Thirdly, it will come suddenly. First Thessalonians 5, 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That's why we must be ready. And fourthly, it will be unexpected. Matthew 24, 44. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Let's broaden this a little bit to talk about the people of the end times. There's the man of lawlessness that I read a scripture just a moment ago, also called the beast, the Antichrist and little horn. He is a final Antichrist among many, John says in 1 John 4:18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So who will the final Antichrist person be? We don't know. We're not told. But it had to mean something to the people in John's day. I imagine they would have assumed it's one of the Caesars. And an interesting thing about prophecy is it has a current fulfillment for the people in that day, but always a future fulfillment. There have been many Antichrist types over the years, like Antiochus, Epiphanes, or one of the Caesars, and then a future person like Hitler was. You know, just sort of a type that points to someone in the future. Some end-time world leader of a one-world government that solves problems. People are worshiping him and following him. Who that person is, we don't know. God will reveal him at the proper time. Another people of the end times, the false prophet. Revelation 13, 11 through 18 describes him as the Antichrist's right-hand man, a leader of an end-time world religion that promotes the worship of the Antichrist. Also, two witnesses are mentioned in Revelation 11. Who are they? Could it be two literal men like Enoch and Elijah or Elijah and Moses who come back? Or could it be a symbolic group of people of Old Testament and New Testament saints. The 144,000 are mentioned in Revelation 7 and 14. Is this a symbolic group of Old Testament and New Testament saints or a literal group of Jewish evangelists from 12 tribes of Israel? But that says to me there will be Christians on earth during the tribulation period. And finally, Jesus The star of the second coming, he comes back to destroy the Antichrist 
and false prophet and all his enemies and puts them and Satan in the lake of fire forever and thus establishes his 1,000 year reign and then beyond. Let's talk about events of the end times. When you're interpreting these things, I think of it like a window. Some things, if the window's open and the shades are up, you can see out or you can see in very, very clearly. But then what if the window shade is pulled down halfway and the window's closed halfway? You don't have as much visibility. What if the wind is all the way down and the shade's all the way down? You know, you can't see hardly at all. And that's how I think of eschatology. And I think God has purposely done this, made it somewhat opaque, that it isn't crystal clear where we think we've got it all figured out. And I think it also keeps us humble and and also reading the word and being in prayer and, and watching the signs. Now, the things I'm going to talk about next, there are different possibilities, different interpretations. And so I try to be not dogmatic about my views, knowing that there are other good Christians that see things differently. But what's crystal clear is the second coming of Jesus Christ. He came the first time as a baby born in Bethlehem to be the savior of the world. And he's coming again a second time as the conquering king. Matthew 24, 30 says, then will appear in heaven the sign of the son of man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's rock solid. That's bedrock foundational Christianity. You can book it. It's going to happen. But what are some other events that surround the second coming of Christ? The millennium. That's a Latin word that means 1,000. And in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verses 1 to 6, it talks about the millennium. But that's the only place in the New Testament that does. So it's a hard to interpret and understand passage. The Old Testament has some like passages, but nothing as clear as Revelation 20, which isn't always so clear. In fact, Christians have understood it three different ways. Pre-millennial, which means Jesus comes before the millennium. Post-millennial, Jesus comes after the millennium. And ah, or a-millennial, meaning that Jesus comes without a millennium. Let me just briefly say something about each of those. The post-millennial view is the least taught today. Perhaps you've never even heard of it. But it was very popular in this country and in England in the 1800s. This view states that the kingdom of God is now being expanded throughout the earth by preaching and ministry. That the world will eventually be Christianized. And when the world is good, as perfect as it can get, then Christ comes back again. So there's not a literal thousand year reign. It's simply an extended period of a golden age. It's a very optimistic view, which and I, I'm glad they have an optimistic view of the gospel. I do, too. The gospel changes lives. But there's very little scripture for this view. The Bible says that things get worse before Christ comes. And this view fell out of popularity after World War One, when it was pretty apparent to everybody, hey, the world isn't getting better. A millennial view was first proposed by Augustine 
or sometimes people say Augustine. And then it's very popular in Reformed theology today. This view states that good and evil run parallel to the end. And at the end, there's one judgment for both believers and unbelievers. There's no literal thousand year reign of Christ. It's figurative. He's been reigning all along. But he does come back a second time and establishes an eternal kingdom. They see all of Revelation as symbolic, not the book of Revelation describing end time events. The premillennial view is the oldest. And I would guess most evangelicals hold it that Christ comes prior to the millennium, a thousand year reign where he intervenes in a wicked world and establishes his earthly kingdom for a thousand years, initiating a golden age of justice and righteousness on the earth. There's two different camps of premillennialists. The dispensationalists see the tribulation and the millennium tied to Israel. That God has had two distinct groups that he's dealt with over the years, Israel and now the church. But then the church is removed prior to the seven-year tribulation and is out of the picture. And then God deals with Israel again during the tribulation times. Israel is restored as the leading nation. David is put back on the throne of Israel. The temple is rebuilt. Animal sacrifices resume. It's a very literal interpretation of the Old Testament texts. Then there's historic premillennialism, which says that the covenant promises for Israel have been fulfilled in the church. The focus is, is on the church, not Israel. It's the oldest view. It has a high view of scripture, but it does spiritualize the Old Testament texts about Israel. This view says God has one group, the church, comprised of Jews and Gentiles. Let's talk about the tribulation period for a minute here. The book of Revelation describes it, if you have a futuristic view of interpreting Revelation, in detail. But two things make this period of time at the end of the age different from before. It will be worldwide in scope, not just localized. And everyone will know this is the end. We're at the end of the age. Sadly, not all will repent, though. Scholars think it'll be a seven year period of time, really not based on anything in the book of Revelation. Revelation describes three and a half years, and it says that over and over and over again. The seven years comes from a passage in Daniel 9, 24 to 27. So some scholars see the first half of that week or last seven years of Daniel being fulfilled in Jesus's earthly ministry. And then there's three and a half years left of the great tribulation. But whatever view you take, the tribulation ends with the battle of Armageddon and the second coming of Christ. All right. The word rapture, you've probably heard that word. It's a word that doesn't appear in the Bible, though the concept does. That word rapture has come from a Latin word translating caught up in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Then we who are alive, who are left will be caught up. That's rapio, the Latin word for rapture. Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. 
From that passage, we see that the Lord descends and the dead in Christ to rise. What does that mean? It means that Christians whose bodies are in the grave will be resurrected. And living Christians will receive a glorified body instantaneously. So you may not have thought of this before, but the rapture is a resurrection. And Jesus says that happens on the last day in John 640. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus himself described his coming in Matthew 24, 31, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. There are different Christian views on the timing of the rapture. Each of those views have strengths and weaknesses. Let's talk about the pre-trib rapture view. That's the most common view among evangelical Christians today, I would guess. Most of the books written about it use this view. Like the Left Behind series, very popular, pre-trib rapture. Jesus comes back seven years before his second coming secretly to take the church to heaven. So Christians... Don't go through the tribulation. They avoid it. You've seen the movies, the Christian movies where the cars crash and the planes crash, right? Because that's the moment of the rapture. Believers are in heaven for the marriage supper of the Lamb and the Bema judgment. Then they return with Christ. But actually, this is a fairly modern idea. The first that's really discussed is around 1840 from a vision of a lady named Margaret MacDonald made popular by J.N. Darby and the Schofield Bible. Then there's the mid-tribulation view, which says that the rapture is in the middle of the seven-year tribulation period. And this view is gaining in popularity, even though it started around 1950, with a pre-wrath rapture view. That's becoming a very popular view among scholars, that God's wrath is at near the end of the tribulation period, and so the rapture is just before that. And the last view is the post-tribulation rapture view, which is the oldest, dating from about the second century. That Christ comes once, and that's when the rapture occurs at his coming. That Christians go through the tribulation. And whether Christians go through the tribulation or not, as a pastor... I feel it's very important to convey to you always the understanding in your mind, I may have to suffer for Christ. So if I do, I'll never deny him. I will know and study the word so I won't be deceived and turn away from him. So what happens to Christians at the end of the age? We will be saved completely. We'll be judged And receive rewards, which we saw last week were crowns and responsibilities. We'll receive a resurrected body that will never die. As I said last week, no more bad backs. I'm really looking forward to that. We'll be like Christ. And we will be with him forever. The Bible says Israel will be redeemed. Romans 11 Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, 
all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And that's why we should pray for the Jews. We should pray that they come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. We don't have to be against Palestinians to be for Israel and the Jewish people. So what should our attitude be in light of the second coming of Christ? Should we be fearful, afraid to live our lives for all this bad stuff's going to happen? Or just indifferent, like, oh, who cares? Or should we become experts at cracking the code? Let me offer a few practical suggestions on how to live as Christians in light of the world we're living in, the fact that I think Christ is coming again soon. Be alert and watchful. Since 2015, I, I have felt called by God. It's really been strong on my heart to be a watchman on the wall. And so I felt like I've had to read stuff that I don't really want to read. Just so I know what's going on, in part as a pastor, to tell you. The thing I'm probably the most concerned about is government. Government control. Government is always the biggest threat and danger to its citizens. Governments have killed more people than wars have, even their own people. Governments control and oppress those that they don't kill. And their media is their propaganda arm to brainwash the sheeple that everything's okay. Just do as you're told and follow along. The Bible says there will be a one world government at the end. And I'm watching for some kind of crisis event that pushes us into that mode. Digital ID, digital money, AI, future pandemics. These are things that are going to be designed to control people and take away their freedom. So at certain points, we have to push back and say, no, I'm not going along with this. And certainly to pray against it. Now is not the time for Christians to be silent in light of government wanting to take more and more control of your life. Living in the light of Christ's coming Another thing is to live holy lives. If your life isn't living for Jesus Christ in a holy manner, if there's still besetting sin in your life and you think this is okay, it doesn't matter. It does. Forsake sin. Repent and turn to Jesus Christ and live for him as if this is the last day of your life. And the third thing is be eager and expectant. Waiting patiently for the blessed hope of Jesus Christ from heaven. I believe we're in the last days and we should live like it. Sharing our faith, working for the Lord until he comes, longing for his return. Revelation 22, 7 through 9. And behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Let's pray. Well, Lord, that's exactly what we want to do. We want to worship you. Know you. 
following you daily. That we hear your voice among the clamor of voices out there in the world saying, this is the way you should go walk in it. But we say, no, that's not the shepherd's voice. I follow the master. Oh, God, I pray that you would protect your people. That no matter what we're called to go through, that we are with you 100% and will never deny you, never deny the truth, but live as Christians in a non-Christian world, sharing our light and the hope that is in us. I pray that you'll strengthen your people in Jesus' name. Amen.